Do you want to learn more about the latest science in reproductive medicine? Explore content from the Fertility and Sterility family of journals, including the newest journals, FNS Reviews, FNS Science, and FNS Reports, all included in your ASRM membership. For even more content, follow Fertility and Sterility on social media, listen to the FNS On Air podcast, and participate in the Journal Club Global and FNS webinar series. To learn more about the Fertility and Sterility family of journals and its multimedia content options, visit fertstert.org. That's F-E-R-T-S-T-E-R-T dot O-R-G. Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and today on the show, we are talking about the relationship between social work and reproductive medicine. To help us in this is Melanie Mickelson. Melanie is a clinical social worker and fertility counselor working with Seattle Reproductive Medicine. In addition, is director of professional training with Empower with Moxie, an educational resource organization for embryo donation, is the creator and owner of Hold Hope LLC, which provides counseling services and advocacy, and is chair-elect of the EC of the MHPG of ASRM. Melanie, welcome to ASRM Today. Thank you, Jeffrey. I'm thrilled to be here. So this is your your first time on the show, and as tradition, I always ask this of my first-time guests, how did you get involved with reproductive medicine? Well, that's a good question, and thanks for asking. Like many in this field, I have my own personal journey with infertility. This is not a club that you ever think you're going to be in or that you want to be in or plan to be in, but it's actually a great process and people that you will never forget. My life work ended up picking me after having my own personal journey. I became a reproductive fertility counselor. Most of us in the field do not initially set out to go into this field, and we're a small but mighty group, and I'm very lucky to come full circle, and I actually work for one of the doctors that helped me become a mom. And and when you say the group, then are we talking about the, the National Association of Social Workers, the NASW, or is there other groups? So most of us that work in this field can either have social work degrees, psychology degrees, or uh, master's in family therapy degrees. However, social workers, we were really the first people that started to be embedded in reproductive medical care very early on because we were already working in hospitals and clinics and providing medical social work. So it was really kind of a natural evolution in that sense. What would you say then is the role that social workers sort of have in reproductive medicine? So just to back up a little bit with our history with ASRM, we have a small mental health professional group that started through ASRM in 1988, and it was composed of a few social workers and psychologists. Sharon Covington, who's a licensed clinical social worker like myself, was the first social worker who led the MHP executive board. And she really wrote the initial clinical guidelines that became our guidances. She's also the editor of the newly released second edition of the Fertility Counseling Clinical Guide and Clinical Casework Studies. And I would definitely say that's a must read for everyone in our field. As social workers, 
We serve on ASRM task forces, ASRM practice committee documents, and ethic committee opinions that we contribute to from the mental health perspective. We do outside trainings. We do ongoing educational courses. We've helped create uh, training modules for ASRM. And there's actually several paths that you can take to become a mental health professional in our field. As I mentioned earlier, any of those degree programs, including social work, the degrees that I just mentioned, none of those fully prepare any clinician to be able to have that expertise to work in the field of reproductive medicine. Therefore, all categories of any of our mental health professionals require additional training in this specialized field, as would be the case for any specialization the ASRM annual meetings, the ASRM modules that are for training, the mentoring programs, the conferences, these all provide opportunities to get that extra training. It's also important to note that most of our graduate training, especially for social workers, did not include specific areas such as testing. Therefore, we all have to get additional training in psychological testing proficiency. It's interesting that you mentioned the MHPG, which is the mental health professional group. I had no idea that such an association had gone on for so long between the NASW and the MHPG, especially within, you know, ASRM. What's the degree of discussion or collegiality that happens? Is there a social work representative and a mental health professional when we do documents? Yes, that's correct. So luckily, ASRM does request and involve the mental health professional group, people that are trained and want to give input into those guidance documents or ethics reports. So typically, we will have a task force or a committee that will be made up of various mental health providers. They can be social workers, they can be psychologists. But luckily, it's a broad range, and it's a great way for us to be able to give our mental health input into the larger documents that ASRM presents. We also serve on some of ASRM's larger task forces as well. We're a very large and active group. So the mental health professional group underneath ASRM we are close to 700 members. So we are a very loud and proud group within the ASRM community. And we are gaining new members every year. But we also, one of the things that we do so well is we work very closely in our educational trainings and talks that we give with attorneys, nurses, and other providers that are multidisciplinary. One of the things that providers might want to know about the role of social workers in reproductive medicine is that clinical social workers constitute the largest group of mental health professionals in the nation. We have 250,000 clinical social workers. We provide more behavioral health care in a variety of settings than any other mental health professional. I was going to ask them, because I'm sure that our our providers and also patients are very curious when we say social worker, what is it that that means as far as in the context of reproductive medicine? That's a great question. The knowledge base and training of clinical social workers includes a biological, psychological, 
and social development model. That's why we have our approach as called psychosocial. So our approach also involves addressing disparities in access to healthcare, ethics, interest, rights, and obligations of all parties. We are trained to evaluate mental disorders, addiction, impacts of illness and trauma. And one of the great things about our roles working with reproductive medicine is we also provide wellness services to patients and we can provide support and training to clinical staff when needed. I've talked with a number of people over the years on the podcast, and it's interesting you bring up this idea of wellness, because that can be a very large encompassing area that continues, you know, to expand. So I want to ask then when providers tell patients that a wellness educator can be provided for them, what what should they expect? Well, it depends on what type of wellness provider they're looking for. But most of the times, social workers or mental health professionals, we also work in conjunction often with dietitians, acupuncturists, for that team, bo- team model approach, stress reduction, we do ongoing counseling, uh, infertility general counseling, and not only just for when you're going through fertility treatments, but really we look at the long-term goal of best family functioning. So in other words, that's not only for people doing fertility treatments when they are our patients, but that's beyond looking at the needs of donor conceived people, looking at the long-term educational needs of families that might've used third-party reproduction. So I always like to say, I tell my patients that our relationship has just begun and that I'm always open to future contact because they will often want to come back and talk about things once they've had a pregnancy or perhaps in the postpartum period. And my favorite part is when we get the Christmas cards and the baby pictures and have people come and visit the clinic and show the babies. That's that's just the icing on the cake to everything we do. What is a normal, if there is a normal, is there is there a, a an average, say, three to five years that they continue to come back to you? Or is there is, it, is there something that's usually recommended? Because obviously we always want people to come and receive treatment and to always follow up. But is there something recommended or is there an average? Where I typically see it, there's not one recommended or average time or thing where I definitely see more of people reaching out or people that might have used third-party reproduction. And now it is time to disclose that information to the child. And even though we've educated them on that, it was a long time ago. And so they forgot and they might want to just have some extra help, some additional resources on how to go about that. I also work with a lot of egg donors. And so I've had egg donors perhaps that might come back and they might have more questions, want some information that we may or may not be able to provide. And as I mentioned earlier, I think more and more now that a lot of the children have grown up, we have donor conceived people who are also needing extra support, counseling or help on how to navigate the fact that they were donor conceived. So that is what I mentioned about our long-term family functioning model, really being able to look not just at the individual that's going for fertility treatment, but to be able to look at what is their long-term goal for their future family and how do we help get them there? I, 
Another time I see people that come back and I'm seeing more and more of this is for embryo disposition and decision-making. So that's one of my specializations is working with people that want to donate or receive embryos, or even to back it up one step further, they have extra embryos and they're having a lot of difficulty knowing what to do with those embryos. Do they discard? Do they donate? Do they use them for reproductive purposes? And so that is a big, big part of our role where we can really help people because their opinions and attitudes do change over time. And we have a lot of data and studies to show that maybe what they signed before they had treatment regarding extra embryos is very different than after they have treatment and have their family as far as what they might ultimately decide for a disposition option. Are we seeing an uptick in the in the last number of years then? Because again, it's been more in the national conversation than ever before about people of a certain age group are more and more getting, you know, opportunities to, you know, do, you know, more non-traditional fertility methods, whether it's egg freezing, donation. Is your group seeing an uptick in, in this? Yes, I would say that we have definitely seen an uptick in questions regarding disposition options or donations or uh, being recipients of donated embryos. I've I've seen an increase of that. I also feel that with uh, our education and knowledge that most people are aware of that there is no donor anonymity anymore, that we talk about discussing and protecting privacy but cannot guarantee anonymity given ancestry.com, DNA testing, That has really been a huge change that I've seen over the 24 years that I've done this, where it's a lot more education, counseling of donors and intended parents in our state, where I am in Washington State, for instance, we have a special law that talks about donor ID disclosure. So in general, there is a whole lot more that needs to go into talking about third party because we know it is not anonymous anymore. And I'm also seeing a real uptake in people that are choosing to use known or directed donors. So in other words, that could be a sperm donor, an egg donor, or really even an embryo donor that the person has found on their own. And they're coming to us for counseling and guidance on how to go about using a known or directed donor. Before we run out of time, I, I want to get to this question because it's that time of year. Does the NASW or the MHPG that you know of, you won't be spilling any beans, I hope, have any sort of programming plan for the 2023 ASRM conference in New Orleans this year? We always have great programming plans uh, coming up for the conference. I'm so glad that you asked that. We offer NASW continuing education credits at every conference that we provide through ASRM, as well as there's the APA credits. And as I mentioned earlier, we do a lot of interdisciplinary talks where we partner with attorneys, nurse practitioners, nurses, physicians, and become part of their talk or part of a panel discussion. And so we're very involved with being able to offer those continuing education credits for social workers. One of the other things that I didn't mention earlier that's also coming up, we are very involved in advocacy. So social workers, we have a natural training in advocacy, and it's wonderful also to be 
in a role, in a position to help advocate for not only our patients, but also to advocate for some of the changing laws that are happening statewide. Well, the next time that we do an advocacy uh, a matters episode, I'm going to have to bring you back because I want you to be able to. I want you to go toe to toe with the Washington office. See, 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 see what kind of ideas you guys can trade back and forth. That's a big ask, but I'm willing to help in any way I can. <laughs> well, it has been an absolute delight. My my guest today has been Melanie Mickelson. We've been talking about social work and, and reproductive medicine. It is March. It is time to celebrate social workers. So uh, please do this month and really every month, but especially now as we're in March, if you work with social workers, please tell them how much you appreciate them, what, for, you know, what they do. Uh, please don't hug anyone because that might be a whole, a whole other can of worms and we just don't need that sort of thing. But uh, overall, uh, thank you so much for taking time out to, to be on the program today. Thank you so much, Jeffrey, to you and to ASRM. As always, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Google, or whatever podcatcher you need. If you want to get in contact with me, just email me, asrm at asrm.org. Until next time, I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Today. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today Series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.